look where the, uh, the attrition rate for gum, you love it. So we're going to end up with the few and the proud. Um, so why don't we go ahead and start uh, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and thy kingdom come, and will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And leave us not in temptation, but deliver us from Amen. Can you fall inside of the Holy Spirit? Amen. Remember, could you all like, take the doors and close them, if you don't mind? Leave a little crack so people who want to come in can. So welcome to our, uh, I guess our second Fredo session. Uh, also, for those who are new, we're going to be looking at um, the, the Catholic faith. I'm teaching it. And uh, it's open to anyone, but we're specifically really here for those who are preparing for um, entrance to the church or for baptism. And for those who were last week or who weren't, I'm recording each of the talks and I'm going to upload them online uh, so you should be able to listen to them. The truth is, I mean, I have all these great designs and desires. I'm, I'm behind. I have a lot of articles I want to be able to put online. I've decided I'm not going to send emails out all the time. We're going to have a weblog on our website where you should be able to go to there and I'll have links to all the different things uh, for each lesson that you could look into uh, to find out more about what we're learning. I'm going to hope to put something like that up this weekend. I'm trying to stay on top of things, but as it usually works out, this week was not like I had hoped it would it would be. Um, anyhow, so we looked last week a little bit at how difficult it is to believe in the world today, the, the struggle of faith, and how, I mean, I think along with that, not only the struggle for us to believe, for anyone to believe, that it seems at least in the West, in America and Europe, that atheism seems to be prevalent. You know, everybody knows someone who's an atheist today. And that we live in what I think most people would agree would be in a post-Christian society or a post-Christian culture. It once was Christian, but now it no longer is. Not pagan, even though a lot of people act like pagans, but post-Christian. And sometimes even post-theistic, post any type of straight-up belief in God. But what I guess in a certain sense is surprising, or might be surprising to people, is this widespread atheism is a new phenomenon. It wasn't like before Jesus or before the Jews, everybody was atheist. The exact opposite was the case. That people believed in God Maybe not a proper concept of God. Maybe they believed in different gods. But primitive people had a very, very deep sense of the sacred and the holy. And that's something we've got to really understand. If we want to sort of put this belief in God that we're looking today, we're looking at man's search for God in context, Early primitive people then, in a certain sense, I'd even say more primitive people today, have no problem believing in the sacred. They see the sacred, they see God, they see deity, and however you want to define it, all over. 
many of the primitive cultures uh, have or this belief called animism, that somehow God or, or this spirit, divine spirit, animates everything in creation. And this is something that you can see uh, developing in different cultures, and then even towards that you will see planets or animals or the suns or the stars all conceived of as deities worthy of worship. And there's a real serious sort of separation in that primitive world between that which is sacred and that which is profane. There's a great, uh, very important work by last century by sort of a philosopher of religion named Mircea Eliade called The Sacred and the Profane. He's a Christian. But just how these primitive cultures, their world, their culture was divided between that which is sacred and that which is profane. Usually that which is within the camp is sacred. And so you have the totems, the, the poles, that was there to sort of align the cosmos. Uh, chaos existed outside, but as long as you had this anchor, this totem there, I'm simplifying this a lot, brought some sense of ardor, some sense of sacred, that everything that was within this realm or this area was considered holy. And so the truth is, for primitive man, we, we see this very clear that man is a religious being. And everything that, the, that, that many of these primitive cultures did had something to do with religion. Now there may be a point, we'll talk about it next week, where that evolved to a certain state where they began to try to make understanding of the world, uh, understanding of the chaos that their lives maybe seem to be, uh, understanding of the different stars and the things in the skies. They may have brought about religion in order to explain that. Again, there, as we talked about a little bit last week, there's a psychology of evolution that can somewhat explain it. But at its core, man developed to be a religious being. Now, I'm not necessarily going to make a big, even if we talked about man as the Kapox day, or the capacity for God. There's some will argue that man's religious nature is something given to him, something imbued by him by God, which I certainly think is true when we got to begin to look at the soul, but it's not necessarily an argument I want to make today. But that sort of evolves, though, this more primitive way, this, this animism to a degree, into the worship of different planets, the worship of animals, the worship of different deities, what we call polytheism. Poly, meaning numerous, theism, or a belief in God. So the earliest manifestations were not, not atheism, but actually was polytheism. And so you might have had the moon god, the sun god, and different cultures manifest all of this, even though there's often some continuity. You had the god of the rivers, you had the god of the storms, you had the goddess of war, you had the goddess of fertility. You had god and goddesses for all sorts of different things. A lot of times you had local gods. Well, this is our God who protects our little village. That's your God that protects that village. And there is a decision whether or not we believe in all the gods or we're going to respect your God, which God is the greater. And quite often, the gods and these myths that were concocted 
what do those gods used to like to do? Fight with each other, they like to sleep with each other, they like to do all these shenanigans that humans wish they probably could do. The gods were doing it. And often the gods demanded sacrifices, we worshiped these gods, and we gave them the sacrifice. Everything was great. But what happened was, is there was a development, and I preached on this a few months back. In a culture, you often had polytheism start, but then it developed into what we call henotheism, or what scholars call henotheism, where, yeah, okay, we're a little bit more advanced for culture. We have all these different gods. Maybe a god we borrowed from this culture we live to next to over here, another god from over there. But there was one god, our god usually, who was the real god. The other gods were real. We respected them. We liked them. But this is our god. This is the god that we're really going to pay attention to. And so you can even see hints of this in Judaism. And again, we're going to get into that a little bit later on, but it's quite clear that the early Israel, the early Israel early on, before God revealed himself, Yahweh, they were just like a lot of the other cultures. They were polytheists. They, they came from that, 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 that historical cultural realm. And then God chose to reveal himself to them through Abraham, through Moses, through the prophets, and they gradually begin to understand a little bit more about him. So you can see some hints, scholars will say, of polytheism in scripture. You can also clearly see henotheism. And you know, here is God, Yahweh, amongst the other gods. And he is reigning. But eventually, as time goes on, in Judaism and in other cultures too, it evolves into monotheism. That it's not just one really super god amongst the other gods. There is one god. That is it. Monotheism. And, and different cultures evolve different ways, different religions evolve different ways, and there's not one sort of stereotype that approaches all of them. But the point is, is that atheism is not the beginning state of the human person. Humans didn't start off, I don't believe in God. They believed they believed in some sense of the sacred, that man was, could be in tune with the sacred, that creation was sacred, and then quite often they were confused that planets or different things were deities that they offered worship to. But as time went on, they moved from polytheism to henotheism to uh, ultimately monotheism and Judaism. I, I didn't mention it earlier at the very beginning or when I was talking about this, the power of myth. One of, we're going to talk a fair bit about that uh, in our next class, of the myths of creation. When we normally think of myth, what, what, what do you normally think of myth? If I say, that's a myth, what do we think of? It's false. It's false. It's not the way we're describing it. Most primitive cultures, and even non-primitive cultures, uh, have a certain mythology. Uh, these are stories. They may be about gods. They may be creation myths. They may be... Uh, different, uh, what we call etiological myths, myths that explain the origins of things in the world or creation, or why things are the way they are, but they're there to communicate a deeper truth. 
If you approach a myth as if it's history, you approach something which is obviously a myth, it's like a scientific textbook, you've got it completely wrong. So we're going to see next week, that's one of the issues that we face in fundamentalism. People reading the first three chapters of Genesis is history. It is not history. It's a myth, a creation myth. It's not there to, to deceive you. It's not something to lie. It's communicating deeper truths. And as Catholics, we've got to accept this, all right? I'm not saying that the Lord's not trying to reveal deeper things, but primitive cultures talked and spoke a lot in myths. And there's a lot, been a lot of great work done in mythology in the studying of myths. Even though he was not a Christian, uh, Joseph Campbell's The Hero of a Thousand Faces. I cannot see how you can get through college today and not read that book. I was able to bless to read it. You've got to read it with a discerning mind where he takes all these great myths from these different cultures and particularly kind of what he called the monomyth. Monomyth of a hero who sort of had this journey to self-discovery, to rescuing the princess, coming to identify his father. It's something that all these primitive cultures have. Our culture has it too. What is it? It's Star Wars. And you laugh, but, but it's influenced by the monomyth. Luke Skywalker doesn't know who he is. He's, the, he's Shane. He's the hero with no name. And he goes in search of the princess. And he fights the dragons. And he meets this wizard character. And then he overcomes it. But then guess what he has to do? He has to face his nemesis. But face himself. He has to face his father. And it's all the model myth. That's kind of what it is. That's why it, for degree it's so successful. And you have these mythological sort of symbols of the hero and the the water and the dragon and the skies and all this kind of stuff. And so one of the things we may have a chance to talk about it is that the arguments against Christianity or Christ is that it's just a myth. You know, you have the dying and rising God, you have the incarnation, you have the miracles, and you can see all these different things in, in early myths. So it's obviously false. But the, the truth is, and if you look at the life of C.S. Lewis, and many of you may be familiar with C.S. Lewis who wrote you know, the great divorce and the screw tape letters and that great Christian apologist along with J.R.R. Tolkien in the early part of the 20th, early to mid part of the 20th century. You know, here's this guy's a great historian, he studied literature, he knew all the myths. He went from an atheist to a theist, but ultimately a Christian because he realized, talking to Tolkien, that all those myths pointed to Jesus. All those, yes, that there were a lot of the same symbols there, but Jesus lived them out in his body. He fulfilled them. And so one of the, the themes that we're going to keep hearing about, or we're going to hear about more, is this idea of myth and the power of myth in early cultures. Uh, very, very fascinating story. Marseille Eliade wrote a lot about that also. Uh, as I said last time, I'm not here, or if you're coming here for me just to spit out the catechism to you, it's not going to happen. Do not think that works that well anymore. And we're going to have to be able to enter into dialogue with mythology, with evolution, with atheism, in order to be able to better understand and to communicate our faith. Do you understand that? We're going to talk a lot more about mythology, and particularly about creation myths, um, next time. So you have all of this. You have these pagan cultures and uh, polytheism and and worship, and you have some weird stuff too, fertility cults, uh, 
temple prostitution, people doing weird things that, you know, I guess they, they like to do back then. But there is one culture, at least in the West, that as much as it had myths, and a lot of myths, great mythology, that in, let's say, the 5th century, 4th century BC, things began taking a different turn. Began moving away from that, or a certain subset of people began moving away from that, to begin having more of an investment, instead of mythology, in reason, in logic, in philosophy. Who are these people? Greeks. The Greeks. All right? Uh, we are, we are, I am not saying that there's not value in, in Middle Eastern thought or in Chinese Buddhist thought. Or, you know, we can study that. But you're, you're going to understand Christian and Catholicism. You've got to understand the debt we owe to the Greeks. Now, how many of y'all ever studied philosophy uh, in school or anything? Right, man? Yeah. So, of course, as we're going to say, this is a travesty. This should not happen, but there's nothing much we can do about it. I'm not in charge of the world. But we have the development in Greece before Jesus of philosophy which is called, or which means the love of wisdom, particularly two figures. Who are the two figures? Plato and Aristotle. Plato living from 428 to 348, and Aristotle 348 to 322. So these are the two sort of like all philosophy, you could basically say anything you study today, we trace back to those two guys. They gave the two overall ways of viewing the world. Now, if you remember, Plato wrote a lot of these dialogues. And for Plato, I'm not going to get into philosophy lesson today. The idea was there were these forms, these, this realm that was the real realm with these ideas that were sort of manifested concretely as shadows of those ideas in the world. And so he was very much on the soul, where Aristotle studied science, uh, empirical realities. For him, you would look at the world and come to know things. Instead of having these ideas that were basically infused in or you, your soul had lived before as Plato had, and you would simply remember these different ideas. There's a very famous painting in the Vatican, which if I were to have my television here and I'd done some more work, I'd have showed you, but many of you may know it. It's uh, the School of Athens. And so they have uh, Plato, who's as old man, pointing like this, and Aristotle doing like that. On either side, they have all the sciences and branches of study that came from them. This is Aristotle, Plato pointing to the heavens. Why? Because of, of the spiritual, because of the, the world of realm of ideas. And Aristotle here, earth, reason, balance. And so... Their whole thing was, as philosophy began to develop, the, the Greek gods, eh, they don't really exist. Does God exist? Absolutely. But it's a god that they use their reason to come to understand as the creator, as the sustainer of reality. Um, and it really begins to begin the triumph of reason, of philosophy, of logic. And it's still very, very valuable to read and study these guys. 
particularly the dialogues of, of Plato, whose figure was Socrates. You know, Socrates is the one who, who drank the hemlock because they said he was corrupting the youth. Um, and Plato was his, his, his disciple and wrote a lot of the dialogues or supposedly things that um, he had talked about or he had said. And so this is the beginning of philosophy. But the early Christians, the early Christians, as they began to try to explain their faith, they latched on to Greek philosophy and Greek thought. Actually, if you sort of study history, the Greeks had gotten to Israel and to, the, to Judah before. In the last few centuries before Christ, you had the translation of the Jewish Old Testament into Greek. You had, a, we heard about last weekend, the, the man, the deaf man with a speech impediment. He was from the Decapolis, the Ten Cities, the Greek settlement in that area. You know, you have Alexander the Great who had been there and conquered and, you know, the Maccabees. So there was a Greek influence there. But so the Christians, though, and there's something that Ratzinger talks about, Pope Benedict, that when uh, it was Paul was going to be heading to, like, China or the East, and a, and a Macedonian appeared to him in a dream and said, come to Greece. And then because of that, the introduction of philosophy and Greek thought connected to Christianity in a very providentially, or seemingly providential way, which allowed for us to understand this idea of how can the three persons be separate but one? So you have the Greek word of person. How can God, Jesus, be God and man? All of these different things we owe to uh, the importance of Greek philosophy. The point of all of this is, is that this becomes sort of an evolution between sort of nature worship, polytheism, to a deeper understanding of philosophy, the power and the value of reason, which leads then to uh, the study of what we're basically doing is theology, the study of God. I really would encourage y'all, I mean, I know I'm going to be suggesting lots of things for y'all to read, but there are plenty of great introduction to philosophy texts. One of the best and the easiest one is written by Mortimer J. Adler called Aristotle for Everybody. You could buy it for a penny on Amazon. I mean, literally, it's a penny. Pay $3 for shipping. Super easy to read. Uh, well, you got to make money somehow. So... Um, but it's really sad, and I think one of the big problems for why Christians have such a difficult time defending themselves is that we don't study philosophy anymore. Uh, ethics, epistemology, metaphysics, we live in a world, and I think it ties back to what we talked about last week, a world that is so practical, scientific, there's no room for philosophy, no room for thinking about the big questions. But yet, it becomes very difficult to appreciate theology, the study of God, without philosophy. And one of the things that we used to say in the seminary is that philosophy is the handmaid of theology. And you can kind of see, though, and the argument can be made here, as we're going to talk about how God reveals himself, 
he does it very, very gradually, as we're going to see. And he allows cultures to develop. He allows evolution to happen. He gets the, the philosophical mindset that's necessary. And so he, God becomes man. We take that on to be able to fully understand and to explain our faith. You're with me so far? I know this is not exciting. We're getting to the exciting stuff. We are. This is how it always is. It's like you watch those movies and they have to set up to find out who the superhero is before the action starts. You know, Batman can't start beating the Joker until you find out how Bruce Wayne became Batman. It's the boring part. You've got to get through it. But this leads to, or we're getting to it, what we call natural theology, all right? So we're going philosophy and all these different branches. But one of the branches of philosophy, the study of wisdom, the, the, the using of reason to, to understand the world, is that we can use our reason and we can look at creation and study it philosophically Without revelation from God, again, revelation is God revealing himself, telling us something about himself explicitly. We're going to look at that next week. We can learn something about the fact that God exists, and we can learn a little bit about who he is and some of his qualities, basically by observing creation and by using our reason alone. This is why Paul says in Romans, you know, there's really no excuse that you can look at creation and come to know that God exists. You may not be able to explain everything about God. You may not come to understand the Trinity, but there's no excuse from looking at the world and the way that there's order and structure in nature. And you can see that when he speaks to the, uh, the Areopagus, what is it, uh, Mars Hill, that we can come to see God. So what we're doing today is this. We're going to be looking at man's search for God. We kind of ended that last week. As man goes on this search for meaning, search for faith. Well, you can see it as sort of a history. Man's search for God. And we can search for the Lord without him necessarily revealing himself to us. What we're going to look at today is how we can come to believe and know that God exists apart from Revelation, apart from Revelation. We're going to look at Revelation basically for the rest of our time, but we want to set it up with philosophy. How can we prove that God exists using pure reason, or even, as we'll see, using science? Now, this is something that you can study your philosophy, you can read all kinds of books, there are many, many, many arguments for the existence of God. But my question is going to be, and I want you all to think about what we talked about last week, can we actually prove that God exists? Can I prove that God exists? So like, why can't we prove that God exists? We don't see him. Uh, we don't hear from him. We don't... Uh as a physical being. Exactly. So that's, that's the point. When we normally think of proof, I'm thinking of scientific proof. I'm thinking of empirical evidence that God exists. We don't have that because not only is God 
pure spirit. But God does not exist in the world as a part of the world. It's one of the big mistakes that I think people make. It's like, here's creation, somehow God is in creation. Well, yeah, we can see his presence, in a certain sense God can be with us, but if creation is a box, God exists outside of the box. The box is all of created being. We can study all those things in there. We can travel to the furthest ends of the universe and study it. And we may say, oh, wait, somebody put this in the box. But God doesn't exist in the box. So we cannot prove that God exists in the same way that I can prove this table exists or I can prove that cheese exists. Just can't do it. But however, can I demonstrate that God exists? Can I show you that it is reasonable to believe in God? Absolutely, I can. We're not going to escape the perhaps we talked about last week. Remember the atheists and the theists? Perhaps it's all true, or perhaps it's not true. Absolutely, perhaps it's not. Cannot escape that. But can I show, as he talked about faith being reasonable, that it is reasonable to believe that God exists? We're not talking about the qualities of God necessarily. We can get into that, and I'll do that a little bit today. But we're simply looking at his pure, plain, straight up, existence. And so I think if you look at it, you go online, easily you can find probably 25 different demonstrations or proofs for the existence of God. This is one of the points that if you read one of the readings I'm going to give you to read, people, oh, there's no good arguments for God's existence. You know, the atheists that are around today. you got to be kidding me. There are books and books and books written by very intelligent people who are not pure fundamentalists. There are a lot of smart people out there who offer different arguments for God's existence. Some are better than others. You may not agree with some. You, and in fact, there are arguments that can be posed against them. Then there are one, there's wonderful debates. You can go find all these great debates online on YouTube of theists debating against atheists. One of the ones, which is not really great, but at least is, is, is interesting, about 10 years ago, Peter Crave, who many of you know, taught at Boston College, he uh, debated Dr. Corksey over here. And Dr. Corksey is a great guy, but it, it was pretty ugly. Crave just decimated him. Uh, but Crave is one of the great guys who can, his Crave, if you ever, oh, I might try to fill a link in. I don't want to overload you all with resources, but that actually might happen, so you'll sit through it. He's older, I was in his 80s. Uh, but he has this really great book, The Handbook of Christian Apologetics, published about 25 years ago. And in it, he has, I think, probably about 24, 25 proofs for God's existence. And they're all meticulously spelled out. So again, you may choose to disbelieve God's existence. But the fact of the matter is, you cannot say that there are not solid proofs logical proofs for God's existence. Some better than others. But for Catholics, what, who is the one or where do we find the most famous proofs for the existence of God? St. Thomas Aquinas. For those who don't know, St. Thomas Aquinas, the Dominican priest, 1225-1275, who wrote 
the, the famous book, which we're going to hear about over the course of our time, the Summa Theologiae, the Summa, the Summa of Theology, sort of like made a compendium of all the great theological questions. And I'll put a link to it. The second question in the Summa, and the Summa is about four volumes long, is on the existence of God, where he very briefly offers his five proofs or demonstrations for God's existence. And so what I want to do today is to be able to look, not at all five of them, we're going to basically look at the first one and then kind of the second one, even though they're pretty much very, very similar. All right? And so we're going to look at that. Then we're going to look at another significant argument for God's existence. But what I'm going to post are a bunch of resources from philosophy. And the second we're going to look at from science that demonstrate God's existence. Okay? Are you all with me? All right. So the first one we're going to look at is what we basically call the proof or the argument from motion. Motion doesn't mean that's like we mean motion. I'm moving, but change. And so Thomas proves that by looking at change in the world or motion or movement, we can come to understand what he calls the unmoved mover. All right? So I'm going to show you. I don't have an eraser. Bobby, can I use a face eraser? No. <laughs> you can use your hair. You're not allowed to. Okay. So, Bobby. When people talk about this idea of the, the, the unmoved mover, or the one who brings change to the world, what you normally say is, okay, another word we can we use is the actual second argument, causality, is that I'm kind of taking one into and conflating them a little bit, but forgive me for that. So here we have the universe, all right? The universe exists. Well, how does the universe come to exist? Well, God caused the universe to exist. He is the uncaused cause. He set the universe into motion. He's the unmoved mover. Therefore, God exists. You're going to read in a lot of places, either this is what Thomas argued, A, or you're going to see people who are trying to refute this argument and saying this is what Thomas argued. But the truth is, on one case, A, it's not what Thomas argued, and then B, when it is offered as what people say Thomas argued, it's Strowman. Strowman argument is not really taking the real legitimate argument. Thank you, Robert. Thank you, Robert. It's, uh, it's not really what he argued. Because if I, if I were to say that I do not think it's valuable or valid to say that the fact that the argument that God started this universe, he put set it into motion, therefore he's the unmoved mover. How would you counter that argument? 
Okay, so the argument, let's say, this is not what Thomas argues. Well, I know God exists because the, earth, the, the, the universe exists, and the universe is a move of motion. And so God is the one who set the universe into motion. Therefore, he is the unmoved mover. There has to be a God. How? What if it was always in motion? Well, what if it was always in motion? What if the universe was never created? Okay, that's exactly it. That's the exact argument. The counter is going to be, what if the universe has always been there? Yes? Are you trying to get to the, like, who calls God? How many turtles are stacked up on top? No, not necessarily. I was getting what he was talking about. You can't maybe get into that, who calls God? But then again, that's the argument that comes up, which doesn't make any sense. You've got to go back to it logically. Because what's happening is, even though we're going to look at the second argument, that we know, or we can be pretty certain, that the universe had came from nothing into being. What if the universe always existed? What if there were multiverses? What if the, the universe got big, then small, big, then small? But what Thomas is not trying to do is argue from empirical evidence. He's trying to argue from philosophy. All right? And so what happens is, is if we try to say, well, here is... The universe started, and all these different things came into motion, and then God, I'm just saying God was the one who put it into motion, well, you could go all the way back, infinitely, and then you don't really have a very, very valid argument. Thomas was not trying to argue the necessity of God as a result of this sort of horizontal motion, or horizontal understanding, but rather... Vertical. What do I mean by that? So what Thomas talks about, or the proof of the existence of God for motion is not that God started the motion back in time, or the beginning of time, and pushed the existence of, into being, or he's the one who caused the world to come into being, but that right now, in the present moment, he is sustaining the world in being. He is sustaining in its existence. If it's moving and it's changing, he is the unmoved mover who's sustaining it in the present moment. Because if you try to argue this way, you're going to lose every time. And people who try to present this argument for God's existence, you're not going to be, you're, you're, you're going to, they're going to say that's what it is, and if you think it is, you misunderstand. Let me try to demonstrate this as best that I can. And again, I have articles that you can look to that I think may explain it better. It's the famous story or the famous example of a rock and a stick. All right? So let's say that I put a rock on this table. And I take this pen, the stick, and I begin to move. I begin to push the rock. The rock's position is changing. Is it changing in and of itself? No. No. What is moving the rock, or what is causing the rock to move? The outside force. The outside force. What outside force? The person holding the stick. The stick force. Okay, look, the stick force is. And so the stick force is forcing, so we're doing philosophy here, y'all. We've got to use our brains. If you have that coffee, you know, maybe you need the wine to make it feel better. The stick is. But does the stick have any ability to move in and of itself? No. And so, at the present moment, as this stick is moving, 
What's helping it to move? Well, it's the, 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 the stick is helping the rock to move. But what's helping the, what's making in the present moment the stick move? You. Me, I am. Well, to be more specific, my arm is. It's the force that my arm is applying on the stick, which is applying to the rock, which is making it move in the present moment. And so what's happened is, is all those move, the movement of the rock, the movement of the stick, are contingent upon another force outside of itself. Contingent means dependent. It's not necessary. It's not doing it in and of itself. We know that rocks don't move themselves. We know that sticks don't move themselves. We know in a certain sense that arms don't even move themselves. So we take it another step, not back, but down. What is making my arm move? Your body. The body, the, 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 the muscle movement, or the, the neurons, or whatever that's making that move. All right? Or are they moving by themselves? Well, no. There's another force behind it that is made, that it's, it's contingent upon to make that move. You could say, well, it's the molecular structure of the muscles. All right? Well, what's making the molecular structures move? What is it dependent upon? Well, it could be the atomic structure. I mean, you can go in any different direction. The fact of the matter is, you're going to keep having to go back. But eventually, you're going to have to hit something you can't get any smaller when it comes to creation. You can call it strings. You can call it quantum particles. You can call it bosons. I don't know. You know whatever, call it whatever you want. I was an English major. I don't know about all this stuff. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, you're going to get to the most essential element. And so what are you going to say? That most essential element is sustaining itself in being? That most essential element is moving itself? That it is necessary? That it's not contingent upon anything else? And we know it exists in creation. And, and is it possible for that thing, as small as it might be, to be necessary, to completely just be dependent upon itself and moving itself, not possible. Completely illogical. Because if that's possible, then it's possible the stick is doing it. You're talking about a series in the present moment of different contingent factors that are causing that rock to move. Not back in history, right now. And so we go as further back because we can't break it down anymore. And you could say, we can keep breaking it down. Well, no, you really can't. You can keep breaking it down that way. You can keep going back into infinity that way, but you really can't that way. Essentially, you're going to get to the basic, most essential element. But what's sustaining that? What's moving that? What's causing that to change? What's causing that to, to be in existence? Itself. How? How is it causing itself to move? It's independent of anything else. That the most essential, okay, it is. But we're talking about something that is created in the world. Is that? Oh, created in the world? Yeah. Oh, no, it has to have something outside. Exactly. That's his point. That logic demands, and even that most essential element in the present moment, demands the unmoved mover demands the uncaused cause. Call it whatever you want. That exists outside of the box. 
because everything else we've talked about exists in the box of the universe. And so the argument that Thomas makes in his first, I think, three arguments, but at least the first two, the, un, the, the argument from motion and the argument from causality is that in the present moment, whether you're talking about that which causes something to exist or that which causes something to move, to move that brings about this potential of, of existence, this potential of, I'm getting into some philosophical talk, that it is essential or accidental. All these things, these things are, or contingent or necessary. That rock is contingent upon the movement of the stick. The stick is contingent upon the movement of the arm. The arm is contingent upon all these things. And that last thing in creation, the most essential element, is contingent upon the unmoved movement. Otherwise, it, it keeps itself into being. Does this make any sense whatsoever to anyone in here today? Sort of. It's not valid philosophically okay. because it is, it is from pure philosophy, it is not necessary to believe that the universe had a creation. What if the universe existed forever? Okay. You can only know that the universe didn't exist forever because of science. That's the next argument. You can't know the universe didn't exist, had a, it had a beginning from pure reason. So this is an argument basically from pure reason, from pure philosophy. God has to exist because there has to be some unmoved mover, uncreated creator that is sustaining the world and existence as we speak. So like if the world was like already in existence, like if the universe is already in existence, and like was it before? Well, then that would suggest that God has to be created. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't necessarily. If the universe has already always existed, one may argue that God doesn't even need to exist. Potentially. I'm not saying that I would buy that argument, but we're talking about something that is sustaining it in existence now. So let's not even use motion. Let's talk about I am here. What's keeping Father standing here? Alive. Well, it's going to be his heart. It's beating blood. Well, what's his heart dependent upon, conditioned upon? It depends upon the neurons that are firing and sending electrical pulses to his heart from his brain. What's keeping his brain in existence? It's the atoms, it's whatever. However, you want to look at it, in this present moment, we could go all the way to the basic thing what is sustaining me in existence? And it could be the it could be the super strings, it could be the, the quarks or the whatever, the quantum miasma, I don't know, whatever it is. Something has to be sustaining that in existence, and it has to be the uncaused cause. It has to be God. It doesn't tell me any qualities about God. I mean, obviously, but he exists outside of creation and sustaining it. Otherwise, we're sustaining ourselves in existence. So would it be proper to say without some necessary being, nothing would exist? Well, some necessary being, nothing would exist. Correct, yes. Because otherwise, unless, but, but you have some 
some counterintuitive logic that contingent being, creation, can sustain itself in being, which we know it can't. Logically, we know it can't. Um, what I'm thinking about with the dog energy there, doing the diagonal thing, the reason why that doesn't work is it would show that it's on the same level. Whereas when you're doing the vertical, you're showing something that's greater than reality is what's holding it in existence. Is that the vertical? Yes, I think it's, I think something greater than reality is holding in existence. This one, nothing is necessarily holding existence. Potentially something greater than reality shoved it into existence. But now it's in existence, you no longer need it. So that's the thing, it's like, the, the, the article that I'll give is, let's say a father gives birth to a son. That son's existence is dependent, coming into existence is dependent on that father. But let's say that father dies. The son doesn't automatically die, nor does the grandson. His existence, coming into existence, is dependent upon the father. So you're saying the line is like time. That's like a timeline in a sense, too. Correct, yeah. This is a, a timeline, yeah. Because if you keep going back out into nighttime, you're not going to necessarily show that God, uh, God no longer exists. Because you can keep going back. So this is the first proof, or this is the proof from philosophy. I know this is hard to understand. Because we're just not... It's like you're not used to doing CrossFit. You go do a bunch of burpees and whatever, and you show up and you feel like terrible. Kind of the same thing. I'm going to point to some other stuff where you can read more about this. Probably one of the, the best guys who can explain this is, is Dr. Edward Facer, who spoke here a few years ago. I'm going to put some of his writing on there, and you can wa watch some of his stuff, and he can do a better job of explaining it. But as long as I can have you understand the proof for God's existence, philosophically, is there has to be a greater being sustaining the world in existence now. And what I'm going to do is, before we take our little break, I want to give another sort of proof, but that is a proof that comes not from logic, but from science. All right? So we talked a lot about, last week, how it seems that science is opposed to faith and religion. We said, of course, it's not. And one of the greatest voices that we have in the world today, in the church today, showing this, besides Bishop Barron, is Father Robert Spitzer. Have you ever heard of Father Robert Spitzer? Yeah. Father Robert Spitzer is, I, I can't, he has this book, I can go get it and show it to you, called New Proofs of the Existence of God. I can't understand half of it and what's in it. But he is a scientist, a physicist, a philosopher. And he has all these great YouTube videos and resources that really spell things out, and I'll put the links to them too. So if you say, if you have a friend that's an atheist and says, I don't believe in God because of science, and you can't explain quantum mechanics or St. Thomas Aquinas, there are links that he'll explain it for you. And you say, this is what Father Spitzer says. So he's got some really, really great resources. But what happens is, is we're passing away from philosophy to science. And so we believe now, and I think very credibly to understand and believe, that the universe did come into being. It was created, what, 13.1 billion years ago. As we saw, there was a Catholic priest who gave us the Big Bang Theory. That there was nothing, and then all of the mass that is contained in the universe today was compressed in this minuscule singularity, and then pow! and the universe continues to expand, and that's all relativity and 
science and all that kind of stuff that we can understand. 13.8 billion years, but it came from nothing. So Spitzer will look at the universe and science and he draws from all these different sources to say, because we know the universe had a beginning and that science demonstrates at least now that it came from nothing, guess what? Someone had to put it into motion. There had to be a creator because of our understanding of the Big Bang. So even though philosophically this doesn't work, because philosophically one could argue that the universe has already existed, we come to understand, and this is really great slide presentation, and all these great resources Spitzer shows, that because we know it began, there has to be a creator that set it into motion. But he also, and it came from nothing, and what he also does, the other argument from science, which we're not going to get into too, too much, is the intelligibility of the universe. Is that no matter where you are, we can understand things in the universe, whether it be the law of gravity or quantum mechanics or all these different things from astrophysics. They are constant laws in the universe. What some scientists call fine-tuning, that it appears that there was an intelligence behind the universe that put these laws in there that we can figure out. But the fact that for the laws to exist, for entropy to exist, for all these things to be so perfect that not only the universe can be sustained in existence, but life somewhere can come into existence, does not necessarily prove God's existence, but surely demonstrates that it's very logical to believe in God's existence because of the intelligibility of the universe and the fact that, it that there seem to be uh, laws in it. I mean, this is not intelligent design. We're not talking about the human person. We're just talking about creation in general. And so Spitzer will explain this in much more detail than I could ever get into. So what we have here are at least two demonstrations from philosophy, but from science, science being the creation of the universe from nothing. There needs to be logically a creator, someone set it into motion. Something cannot come from nothing. I think, and, and uh, Spitzer's debated or dialogue with, with Stephen Hawking and Hawking, I think in one of his more recent books, talked about how the universe came from nothing. But if you really analyze what Hawking means, Hawking means something. It's some, it may be this microscopic, minuscule thing, but it's not nothing. But the belief from Big Bang Theory is that there was nothing, then there was a singularity, then the universe began to expand. And I'm not a scientist. I cannot get you in a lot of these details, but there, there are very intelligent men and women of science who can make some pretty solid arguments from science and intelligibility creation that God does exist. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna take a little break. Uh, we'll just take a little five minute break. And I want to though delve a little bit more, not into theism, but into atheism and the reasons for atheism and how to understand and how to best deal with that, that phenomenon. So why don't we take a little break and we'll come back in about five minutes.
Why don't we go ahead and start again? Sometimes when I have when I have at 5 p.m. mass, I mean 5:30 mass, I, I get a little late start. But I've got some other stuff I want to cover, which I think is uh, pretty pretty interesting. And I think there are plenty of ways that you can go and look up different arguments from God's existence, and I'll point you to those. But what about? this witness that we've seen of the rise of atheism. Do you mind closing the doors again? The rise of atheism in the 20th century and how prevalent it seems to, to be now. We saw some of it last the last class. A lot of people will say that very famous atheist philosopher, philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, that God is dead and we've killed him. And I'm not gonna get into this, this will really bore you to death. But what was Nietzsche really trying to say? Nietzsche was really trying to say that since the philosophical branch of metaphysics is dead, so is God. That there had been a procession in, 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 in philosophy where anything that couldn't be perceived or wasn't real, the metaphysical wasn't real. If you get rid of the metaphysical, the spiritual realm or the possibility of discerning causality and whatnot, then God ends up being dead. But that's where you get the term from. What we've seen through the horrors of the 20th century, science, the scientific mentality, that, uh, and especially now, the young generation, and your, a lot of your generation, and millennials, uh, and the, the, the nuns that are not religious, they don't believe, and they specifically don't believe in God. And supposedly, though, you see it a lot more from intellectuals. The, the scientists, the engineers, the people in the English department, how, how can you believe in God? And I remember I could, look, I remember one friend, I had a friend of mine when I was in college said, you know, Bryce, you're a smart guy, how can you still believe in God? Because I was gonna go to mass the next day. <laughs> and it was a prejudice that like, people who believe are just sheep. And, and granted, maybe some people indeed are sheep, I'm not gonna say that. But that these people are so intelligent and they're scientists and, and they need to be listened to and we need to respect them. Fine, maybe so, but their arguments either hold water or they don't. And just because you're super intelligent or you're a scientist doesn't mean your argument is valid. And so there are a lot of arguments, though, against God's existence. Now, the first thing is, is I can make positive arguments for God's existence, which would need to be countered. But you hear a lot of people, not necessarily who are atheists, countering. How many of you ever heard anybody ever counter that argument from causality? Yeah, no, you just don't often hear it. And most of you who do counter it, counter it in a horizontal way. Well, maybe the universe was inf uh, infinite. You don't understand what we're talking about. But what is the most common argument besides from science or from technology that we often hear from people, whether they be the new atheists or the intellectuals or whatever, for, I mean, sorry, against God's existence. The devil hypnotized their guys to claim their evil? Correct. Most common today is the problem of evil. You all have all heard that. And it takes different forms, but it's the, the problem of theodicy. Why does God allow evil? 
So there's God, and he's all good, and he's all powerful, but we also know there's evil in the world. There's natural evil, the hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes that kill people, and plus there's human beings who do really evil and horrible things. Well, if God exists, and he's all good and he's all powerful, why does he allow that? Therefore, because evil exists in the minds of a lot of people, God can't exist. Have you all heard that argument? Okay, I'm, I'm not trying to make a straw man of the argument, but I'm reducing it to the best, you know, basics. What is the, the issue, or what are some of the issues with this argument? Because if God didn't exist, there would be no such thing as evil. That's a possibility, even though you can get into a philosophically nuanced understanding of what evil is. As more of a privation than something positively that exists. Chris? It says that we know that there can be nothing good coming out of that. It's basically saying that we know better than God. Which is true, but doesn't necessarily directly counter that argument. Even though we're not, it's a criticism of it, but just because some good can come from it, we can argue that. It's not going to be very, very convincing. I mean, you could say, well, I'm going to go torture my kids so some good can come from it. That's basically. The idea that a parent allows this to happen so the good can come from it. We're not talking about some salutary good like a surgery. We're talking about a senseless or seemingly senseless evil. I don't know if this is going to answer your question, but for an atheist, why would they consider like a hurricane a natural evil if it's material world working itself out? Well, I, I, don't, I don't think they would consider that the natural evil as much as it the is the material, the loss of life and it's a human life. Morgan, let's give you a shot. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, you know, we all have a choice. There's human freedom, yeah, and that's another argument. But, but let me give you some other things to think about. You're right, because we're going to get to human freedom eventually. This argument... Mm. Yes, Bob. That doesn't argue that it doesn't argue against the hurricanes, A, and the death. It kind of it kind of contacts with what she said of human freedom, but you're talking about love, and it's gonna be very hard to prove that God loves from this. We're talking more philosophically here. It's a different thing. The this argument is ultimately an argument from emotion. It's ultimately an argument from emotion. That God that all these horrible things happen, therefore God doesn't exist. But this argument in no way, shape, or form counters either this argument from philosophy, that the God, there could be all this evil in the world, but someone still has to be holding the world into existence, nor does it counter the scientific arguments. There could be all this evil in the world, but someone still has to set the world into being. The best this argument does is possibly prove that a good and just God does not exist. It's the best it could do. Does that make sense? It's radically different than saying that God doesn't exist. Uh, so when I've argued with people, I've said, hey, this is a valid thing. It's really, really real. But the best is we're debating whether God, God is just or not. Now, one of the things that traditionally, even though we didn't look at it, we're not going to really look at it, that we could say not only from reason can we believe that God exists, 
but we can discern certain attributes, attributes about God, that he's eternal, that he's just, that he's good, and all of these things. But so this argument of the problem of evil, all that would do is argue against that, then put the burden on us to say, how can a good God exist that allows these things? But in no way, shape, or form does the problem of evil, whether it be human evil or evil that comes from natural disasters, counteract the argument of contingent being or the argument from the science and fine-tuning. Would you all agree with that? So I'm not saying that the argument for evil doesn't need to be addressed, but it's a completely different topic, whether or not that we have a good and just God. And so why does God permit it? I don't really know. Because he respects human freedom, because he loves us, because good can come from it. Those are all arguments of why he might allow it or how a good God can allow it. But there may be some who say, and again, I haven't met anybody, yeah, I believe God exists, but he's evil. Okay? And maybe because he believes, he allows, he wants to torture his, his, his that's what a lot of those pagans believed in the first place, that God was torturing. I'm, I'm going to wait to get to the questions. I'm going to wait to get to the questions. I want to be able to finish this, and we'll address questions at the end. You know, so what I've found, and this is, I'm speaking from my experience, and I'm not trying to demean there are some very, very intelligent people that I know that are atheists that make some very, very valid and some very good arguments. And I'm not saying that there are not books out there or, or videos you could watch and you could see some really solid arguments against God's existence. Again, I don't think the problem of evil is one. There are them out there. They do exist. But from my experience and the atheists that I've met or encountered, very rarely is their true foundational argument against God's existence rooted in reason. Very rarely. In fact, from my experience, and I'm claiming this right now, and I don't have conclusive evidence, most of the people that I have encountered, not all, that are atheists or claim to be atheists the reason they actually are lies a little bit deeper. A number of years ago, there was a psychologist called Dr. Paul Vitz. He's actually still around. And Paul Vitz wrote a book that amongst Catholic circles sort of became popular, even though it received some criticism, called The Faith of the Fatherless, Fatherless, where he looked sort of not comprehensive view, but some of the famous atheists of the past, let's say, 300 years. And the one thing that they all had in common was a weak, abusive, or non-existent dad. So his argument is that one of the real roots of atheism is not from reason or science or intellect, but psychological. Psychological. Now, which is funny because on the flip side, you can read all kinds of articles about how there are psychological roots and emotional roots for belief in God. That the type of dad that we had leads us to believe in the type of God that we perceive. Well, if that's true, and, and, and our human experience of a father leads us to believe in a certain type of God, what about the possibility 
and the lack of a father, or in general, a lack of an authority figure, lead us to not believe in God. And I have seen this over and over and over again. I once had a, a, a young man, when I was doing Ask a Question, come up to me. And again, he's not representative of everybody. He said, I don't believe in God. Well, how come? And he gave me these arguments. I shot him down. I gave him this argument from the contingent being. He had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> and I said, can I ask you a personal question? And uh, he said, yeah. So tell me, you know, what's your family life like? And dad wasn't there. It's an alcoholic or whatever. I said, my suggestion is that your atheism is rooted in a much deeper wound than I'd suggest you looking into. And I remember sort of tearing up. He got teared up between tearing up and getting angry at me. And I said, I said, I'm not trying to provoke, I'm not trying to dig. I just want you to look at that, that maybe there's something else there. So when people come to me and they say, Father, I got a friend who's an atheist, what can I tell them? I said, you probably don't need to tell them anything or argue with them. You can, and maybe you'll make some headway, but quite often, at least from my experience, atheism is a problem of the heart, not of the head. So if you think of people that you know that struggle or reject God, a lot of the times they may be rejecting their parents, their dad who was abusive, their father who was absent. And what happens is they construct it from that this God is a vengeful, mean God or an absent God. That's what they're rejecting. And so I heard once in an article, I read once in an article, tell me about the God you don't believe in and I'll tell you, I probably don't believe in any, any either way. But so often we have this false construct of who God is, and we reject that. So if you think of it, people that you know, and again, I'm not saying that it's going to be everybody. If you dig and you probe, a lot of the times that atheism is there. And it can be not their father. A lot of the people who maybe were abused by priests no longer believe. Because that priest, you're rejecting that authority. How could a God allow this? I don't believe in God because of some much deeper pain. And that through forgiveness, through coming to know love, through potentially years of psychotherapy, that there can be some healing of the heart. Does that make sense? Yes. Have you all ever thought about that? Is it the way that people do it? Yes. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's really, really true. So. So what happens is, but we're going to get to that, what should the approach be? Or how do we deal with people who are lost or who are searching or those who've given up and they say they don't believe in God, but there's something a little, a little bit deeper. We're going to get to that. But I got to, to, to address two, two issues, though, first before we get to that. One is the issue of agnosticism. Agnosticism from the Greek agnosis, basically anti against or no knowledge. Knowledge, gnosis is knowledge. An agnostic is one who doesn't say that God exists or doesn't exist. He's agnostic. He doesn't know. There's not evidence for or against. And and I'm sure many of you may have met people who are agnostic or claim to be that. And and you you could offer the same arguments for or against. It seems like a, a why God exists or why God doesn't exist. But Ratzinger says, I forgot where it was, he says, the one question you cannot sit on the fence on about is whether God exists or not. You can sit on the fence whether you like 
red wine or white wine. You can sit on the fence if you prefer Star Trek or Star Wars. You can sit on the fence whether you like wearing khakis or blue jeans. You can't sit on the fence of whether or not God exists or not. Ultimately, you've got to make a decision. And so maybe you're, you're, you're confused but the, or you're, you're agnostic, but you've got to be going in some direction. It's not fair, it's not legitimate to basically sit on the fence on that. And so what Ratzinger suggests, not only for the agnostics, but the atheists, live like God exists. Live like he exists. And then after a few months or a year, see how your life changes. You can't do any harm by living like God exists. And if you do, if you begin to do that, then maybe you can come to believe in him. The other truth is this, and it kind of ties back up to what we talked about earlier about man being this religious being and having this deep sense of the sacred. I think it was G.K. Chesterton who said, the man who visits a brothel is looking for God. We cannot, he's looking for ecstasy, he's looking for meaning, he's looking for happiness. We as humans, cannot escape doing that. And if we do not worship the true God, guess what we're going to do? We're going to make idols of other things. Sex, money, power, relationships, work, school. We're going to make idols. And what are those idols going to do to us? They're going to destroy us. So, in a certain sense, it can be very valid to say, we cannot escape belief in God. You reject the real God, you reject a God of reason, you reject a God of revelation, we are, you're going to make something else into God. And that God ultimately is going to eat you alive and devour you. But what do you do then? How do you address atheists, whether they be intellectual, whether they've made their other idols, whether they claim to be agnostic. How do you address and evangelize atheists today? As believers, or at least here, people who are searching. You know, one is if you find that individual truly is searching. There are people who don't believe who are genuinely searching. You can help accompany them. We're gonna to get to this, why this is important. Sitting and condemning doesn't work. I don't know if it's ever worked, it really doesn't work. A guy who hates God and hates religion, and you tell them they're going to hell, and they're stupid for not believing in God, guess what? That's probably not going to make him say, you know you're right, I want to believe in God. <laughs> the same thing with the whole scandal. You go and you condemn bishops, and you write them and threaten them, oh, you're right, I'm going to go and change my behavior. It's generally not going to work. Generally not going to work. We've got to be able to show intelligent arguments. That's one of the things that I've found amongst atheists who I know who are not dummies, who are intelligent, is that they so often encounter Christians and Catholics who are fundamentalists and just believe because the Bible says so, and they can shred them. They can encounter a Christian who they may disagree with, but knows there's no dummy and can hold their own and can have a discussion, that builds some respect, particularly in an intellectual community. 
and particularly on a university. You know, we're blessed here at UL to have a lot of really smart, believing professors uh, who can dialogue and can respect. And I think there's, there's not a lot of hostility and there's a lot of respect there. But I'm going to propose, is what I did is like last time I kind of proposed a figure of reading like The Little Prince and whatnot and The Search for Faith and talked a lot about Ratzinger. I want to propose, I'm not necessarily suggesting you're going to enjoy reading all of her stuff. It's someone you've probably never heard of. Her name is Madeline Delbrell. Have you ever heard of Madeline Delbrell? Madeline Delbrell was a French woman who lived uh, during and after the period of World War II in France, outside of Paris. Uh, in these little, in this town, I forget the town or the town she lived in, which were basically, after World War II, communist enclaves, where instead of like communism in all of the Russia, there was this whole city, and everyone was an atheist. No one believed in God, they were anti-theists. So she said, as a Catholic believer, I'm going to go live amongst these people and I'm going to evangelize them. And so from her book, from her experience, she wrote a book, which is a collection of thoughts called We, the Ordinary People of the Streets. Hard to find, worth it if you can find it. I think it may be out of print or if it isn't print, it's not that cheap. And she says that you got to, to accompany them you got to walk with them. you got to live with them. And she has all these wonderful quotes, and I'm going to read one of them. One of the things that I said, I don't want to read a bunch of boring quotes to y'all um, because you can go read it online or, or watch videos. This is from her book, We the Ordinary People of the Streets. When love meets a non-believer, it becomes evangelization. But this evangelization cannot be other than fraternal. We do not come in our generosity offering to share something that belongs to us, namely God. We do not come as righteous among sinners, as people who hold diplomas among the uneducated. We come to speak about our common father, which is interesting she says that, who some people know and others don't, as people who have been forgiven, not as innocents, as people who have had the fortune of being called to believe, to receive the faith, not as if it were a good that is owed to us, but as something that has been deposited in us for the sake of the world, and this entails a whole manner of being. She has many more beautiful things to say that. Is that you've got to approach it with love. You say, listen, it's not like, oh, I'm better than you, I'm smarter than you. Hey, I'm, I'm going to live among you. I'm going to be your friend. I'm going to show you respect. I want you to show me respect too and not be a jerk. But by our way of living, we show them God. We show them the Father. We show them love. That's what evangelizes. Is that what Jesus did? Exactly. You can make arguments. I'm not saying you can't make arguments. But I mean, how often have you convinced through a pure argument an atheist to believe? Very, very rare. Very rare. Bob, let me finish. They got a little that there's no real treatment for This is true, Bobby. Yeah, it is. But that's how they're going to know we're Christians. That's how we are going to evangelize these people more than any of these arguments that they come up with. Ratzinger talks about in one of his famous essays, I think I mentioned it earlier, the two most we live in a world that doesn't reason doesn't work. Even though I mean people don't listen to reason anymore, they don't reason themselves into most positions. But the two most convincing arguments of the faith are going to be beauty and holiness. 
beauty we talked about St. Peter's last time. And I'm trying to argue is holiness is. So the holiness of the lives of whether it be a Mother Teresa or a St. Therese, that you're going to convince other people that God exists, particularly in a world that's atheistic, you're going to have to do it by living an upright life, even more so today, and showing them love and showing them caring, being willing, willing to talk to them, to dialogue with them, and show them that you're not judgmental. That's how it's going to happen, and ultimately open a way to the heart. So I find, though, that a lot of conversion stories uh, of looking at the way they pass from atheism to theism uh, is powerful. One of the best that today I've read, and I'll put a video for it, and some of you may have read her book, uh, Something Other Than God, what is it? Jennifer Fulweiler, she's been here before. Jennifer has that radio show. Uh, she was an atheist who converted to Catholicism. Unbelievable testimony. I'm going to post a video of it so you can watch it. And hers too. Yeah, it was, there was an intellectual dimension to it, but it was something much deeper. The conversion wasn't just in the head, even though there are plenty of books out there that talk about intellectual conversions. It was a whole conversion. Her head converted, her heart converted, her husband converted with her. And so there was that deeper conversion here to Christianity and Catholicism. But we're kind of jumping the gun here a little bit, and so I'm going to sort of try to bring this to a conclusion uh, and then have a few moments of questions. Because ultimately right now, this man's search for God, that we're searching for God, we're searching for truth, we're searching for meaning for our existence, but ultimately the only way we're going to find that, we believe, is in and through God not from created realities. And that our human intellect, by looking at philosophy, looking at, the, at, at creation, can come to know God exists. But all that does is bring us to theism, the belief in God, and maybe potentially uh, to certain qualities of God's omnipotence, his omniscience, his eternity. But still, the God that we've come to, the God of the philosophers, is still very nebulous, very removed, very, very distant. Not the God of Judaism, not the God of Christianity. We believe in a personal God. And most of what we've arrived at is the God of the, de of the deists. A God who's the watchmaker, who sets creation into being, who sustains it into being, and it's pretty much just stepping back. So what we're going to have to pass to, and that's what we're going to do next time, is a personal God who did create, who does sustain us in being, but it takes an interest in creation and chooses to reveal himself to us. And how he reveals himself to us, we'll talk about it next time. So that's going to be next time. We're going to look at Revelation, this God who sustains and creates, who chooses to reveal himself to us, why he chooses to reveal himself to us, and we're going to look a little bit more deeply at creation and how, how to understand Genesis, the meaning of creation, uh, and what creation reveals to us uh, and scripture reveals to us about God's true nature. And then we're going to have different, different lessons after that as we go on. But that's kind of where we're going to close it up today, just a man's search for God and giving very basic proofs for God's existence. So let's close with a, a glory be for those, again, who aren't, who aren't Catholic or, or, or learning and are going through the process. 
It's that, that small prayer where we give praise and glory to Trinity, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And don't worry, we have plenty of time to talk about the Trinity. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be. For God, 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 God,